Hi, and thank you for listening to today's podcast. I'm Steve Blumenthal, founder and CEO of CMG and author of the weekly On My Radar Letter. I want to remind you that nothing in this podcast is a recommendation by us for you to buy or sell any security. I had the pleasure this week to interview Barry Habib. If you're not following Barry, I recommend that you do. I first met Barry at Art Cashin's favorite bar located just a few steps away from the New York Stock Exchange. Art has a corner at the bar reserved for him. John Malden had invited me to join him to meet Art and some friends after the stock market closed a little bit more than 10 years ago. Art would tell stories about the pranks that the floor brokers would pull on some of the younger brokers. He's always fun and upbeat. Art is tuned in to the markets like few others. What many people may not know about Art is that he was the person who would resolve the trade disputes that would arise between one floor broker and another, or between a specialist market maker and a broker. Everyone knew Art's integrity and his fairness. Art would arbitrate all disputes with one simple question, what is in the best interest of the client? I first met Barry Habib a few years ago at one of Art's gatherings. I've followed him closely since then, and we've become friends. He has an infectiously positive personality, and as you'll soon find out, I personally enjoy his direct and his generally kind way. Last May, Barry presented at the Malden Strategic Investment Conference. It was hosted virtually by Malden Economics, and I shared some of Barry's insights with you in an On My Radar letter last June. Barry remains bullish on real estate, and you'll get his current thinking in today's podcast. But before we jump in, here's a little bit about Barry. He's an entrepreneur and frequent media resource for his mortgage and housing expertise. You've likely seen him on CNBC and Fox. And Barry has some history in theater too. He can act and sing, something I look forward to seeing him do someday. And he is the lead producer and managing partner for Rock of Ages, the 27th longest running show in Broadway history. And there's more. Barry is an Amazon number one best-selling author for his book, Money in the Streets. He was named a 2019 Mortgage Professional of the Year by the National Mortgage Professional Magazine, was the 2019 finalist for the prestigious Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. He is a three-time Crystal Ball Award winner, 2017, 2019, and 2020 by Zillow for the most accurate real estate forecasts out of 150 of the top economists in the US. Which brings us to my discussion with Barry. As you listen, there are several insights that jumped out at me and I encourage you to focus on. The Fed isn't buying 40 billion in mortgage securities each month. They're actually buying closer to 100 billion. Put your head around that number for a second and listen to how Barry explains it. Also, he remains bullish on the housing market, and it's not because of the Fed injected liquidity. You might recall the 2007 mortgage crisis, I'm sure you do, and all of the liquidity that was created by Wall Street packaged junk mortgages that fueled massive speculation. The real estate crash and the great financial crisis followed, as we well know, in 2008. But despite the massive amount of Fed money, the dynamics are much different today. Barry correctly termed bearish in 2007 on real estate. He remains bullish today. Also, 
listen to what he has to say about demographics and why the number of people reaching age 33 is an important input into understanding the direction of housing prices. He also talks about the supply demand mismatch. Today, there are far more buyers than sellers. There is not enough inventory to meet the demand and he doesn't see that changing soon. All of this points to a bullish outlook for housing. Barry moves fast, buckle up. You're about to get tuned in, tapped in and mentally turned on. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Barry as much as I enjoyed interviewing. Thanks for listening. Here we go. Hey, Barry, thanks for joining me today. It's great to see you. And uh, we're here today to get uh, your expert insights on the housing market, real estate market in general. Take it it's, away. It's, it's always great to be here with you. I'm a big fan of yours. I love what you put out all the time. Uh, one of my favorite reads. Thank you very much for that. It's awfully nice. Okay, just uh, we were talking just before we got going about uh, where people get it wrong with real estate. Uh, and most people have gotten it wrong. Almost everybody, Steve. Almost everybody's got it wrong. Except you. You've gotten <laughs> it right. So uh, tell us what you're seeing and 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 uh, give us a little bit of history. Yeah, there's been so many calls for the housing bust in the past several years, but especially now the drumbeat's getting larger and larger and larger. It's not people who've gotten it wrong consistently. Diana Olick, of course, is like the band leader of that. But all the you know publications, Housing Wire, Adam Data, Florida Atlanta University, it goes on and on and on. All the papers now. You know, uh, the, the most widely searched term on CNBC is housing bubble right now. And, you know, even some of the smartest people that we all know have had a difficult time getting their arms around this. For years, I've been talking to them. They've been calling for a housing crash. And I've been trying to explain to them. And there's a lot that goes into it. People just don't understand. So let's start with a few things. The basics are demographics. And demographics are, are a big driving factor in any business. You need to know your demographics. So the way we look at demographics, and it's been very accurate, is a median age of a first-time homebuyer is 33 years old. So you look at birth rates from 33 years ago, and that's going to tell you about how many people are coming. So when you look at that, you go back to 1987, 1988, depends on what their birthday was, and you see that those birth rates were very, very strong. But here's the magic is that in the subsequent four to five years, there was an explosion in birth rates. That tells us there's a lot more demand coming. Now, at the same time, you want to look at supply. By the way, those demographics, that's what told me that there was going to be a, a housing bubble. And back in 2006, you know, I acted and I was on CNBC talking about it. I used to get hate mail about it. I sold my company because I knew there was a housing bubble because I believed in these demographics. Because in 2006, when you looked at the birth rates from 33 years before that, which was 1973, there was an enormous drop. And that was due to Roe v. Wade. 1973, in January, Supreme Court made abortions legal, birth rates drop, and 33 years later, there's less people to come to form households. It's just magical when you look at that. But that doesn't tell the whole picture. There's the demand side. I mean, the supply side. Now, back in 2006, builders didn't get the memo about demographics, so they built more homes than they had ever built. They built roughly 2 million homes, but there was less than 900,000 households formed, beginnings of oversupply. And that's how the housing bubble started. Now it's the exact opposite. Many more households being formed than there are builders putting up homes to make up for it. And you can't say, well, people sell their homes because if, if somebody sells their home, they need to live somewhere, right? And I hear all this stuff about, you know, well, maybe they'll rent. Well, rents are up 14% year over year. And then you get that 6% hit every year after that. And if even if you leave a home and you're going to rent, you're going to eat up a roof somewhere. So whether you have a high demand in rents or a high demand in home ownership, both cause real estate to be in high demand. On the supply side, builders just aren't keeping up. The costs to keep up are tremendous. There's a lot of soft costs in there. Land is at a premium. Land is tough to find. 
So builders aren't keeping up. And I don't see that dynamic changing in a long time. Plus the chip shortage now has hurt deliveries of homes because every home has appliances that are smart appliances, can't deliver a home. So when we look at the overall picture, it doesn't appear to me that statistically the imbalance between demand and supply is going to rectify itself. So everybody talks about this being a terrible thing. Yeah, it sucks to buy a home right now. It also sucks to diet. It also sucks to exercise, but the results are great. So for the 67% of Americans who do own a home, this has not been bad for them. Extra equity, pay off debts. They've seen great wealth creation. Now, yes, people wanting to get into the marketplace, it is hard. It is not easy, but the rewards are great. Now, there's a lot of other things too. People compare 2006 and they don't look at the whole picture. Say, okay, well, home values are up 41% since 2006. Well, guess what? Interest rates are half of what they were. In 2006, there was 6%. People buy a home like they buy a car. They base it on monthly payment. And the monthly payment, if you look at that home going up 41% from 2006, but yet the change in interest rate, the payment is cheaper today. It's more affordable today. And then they fail to look at incomes. Incomes are up 55% from 2006. So therefore, what, what you look at in a mortgage, you look at the front ratio, it's called. It's called, if you take your monthly income, what percent of your monthly income can handle the mortgage payment, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance? And that ratio in 2006 was 30%. Today, it's 19%. Oh, wow. So you're using a much smaller percent of your monthly income to buy the home. Although the home is 41% higher, you're still only using 19% of your income on average as opposed to 30%. And this tells a story of a housing market that is still very affordable, maybe not to everyone, but there's more population. Steve, in 2000, let's take 2007, which was kind of like the height of it, there was 116 million households in the United States. Today, there's 130 million households. So there's 14 million more households and inventory in 2007 was 3.7 million units. Today, it's 1.2 million. So you've got two and a half million less wow. homes for wow. sale and 14 million more households that right. need a home. Right, so, in the math. By the way, there are so many other statistics and so many other metrics. I just wanted to try and give you a few to refute the fact there's not, there is not a housing bubble. Now, look, I don't want 16% appreciation. I think that that makes it too difficult. I would hope that we see a much more calm level of appreciation, but it is not going to go in reverse. It's not going to see price declines. Okay, so talk a little bit about uh, mortgage rates, interest rates. What's your advice Around. So interest rates, it's going to be interesting because here's what's going on. A lot of talk about tapering and the Fed does want to taper. Now we got a lousy jobs report, right? When you think about the number of jobs created last week. So the Fed may look at that and may have another excuse yet to kick the can down the road. And let's say, let's look at October. There's going to be something very interesting, Steve, as we record this today, this is the expiration of benefits for unemployment for seven and a half million people, 3 million of which get an extra $300. So people are going to start looking for jobs. This creates a very interesting dynamic. So think about this. We've never seen this before. These individuals are all not counted in the labor force. So when they come back to look for a job, the first thing is that they're going to be counted as unemployed where they weren't counted as unemployed before. So we may actually see an uptick in the unemployment rate. The Fed may kick the count down the road based upon that. However, Many of them will find jobs because, as you know, there's about 10 million job openings. There will be mismatches. It's not going to be easy. It takes time to start a job. You know how the process is. You look, you shop around, you get interviewed, then you take a job. You start, okay, I'm going to start two Mondays from that. You, you know how it works. So the numbers then will be delayed, but eventually you'll start to see a lot of job creations. But at the same time, it's not going to make sense to so many people that why would the unemployment rate go up when we have job creation? We've never seen that before. It's because this interesting expiration that has just occurred on the unemployment benefits. Now, when we look at interest rates, interest rates are 
going to be very sensitive to things like inflation. And we do have wage pressure inflation. We do have goods inflation because of the chip shortage, because of the reopening. But I think that that settles down a little bit. Some of it, of course, will be sticky. Mm -hmm. The other part of interest rates is activity in the economy. And we're already seeing a decline. Remember, second quarter GDP was estimated first to be over 9%, then they reduced it to 8%. What do we get? A little over 6 We saw this in 2020. In 2020, after $2.8 trillion between March and April of 2020 of stimulus, it dissipated. And by the fourth quarter, it was anemic. The fourth quarter's portion of GDP was nine-tenths of 1%. It was all front-loaded. The 4.1% GDP was all front-loaded in the first three quarters after the stimulus. Now, in December, we have another $900 billion. As you know, in March, we got another $1.9 trillion. Interestingly enough, the same number, $2.8 trillion. So there's no reason to believe that sometime in the fourth quarter, we should start to see a decline or a slowdown in the economy. And as friends of ours like Lacey Hunt, who really understand this, and one of my mentors, says that you know that high level of debt that we are now experiencing, by the way, over $8 trillion on the Fed's balance sheet, that's not counted as debt, but that's a lot, uh, as well as the enormous amount of debt we have, does tend to slow and drag the economy. The way I'm looking at this, Steve, and you know, uh, I, I wish it wouldn't happen, but it seems to me that we are likely to see whether it's textbook or not, recession-like conditions or a recession 22-23, I don't think we've seen the low in interest rates. I think that when you look globally at the similar situations that countries have, and they already have suppressed rates, and the negative rates that are out there, rates here look pretty attractive, which means that by definition, people will be wanting to, to buy more of our paper, whether it be mortgage paper, whether it be that, and that should bring interest rates down here, not in a straight line, we know that. But I think there's a gravitational pull towards lower interest rates. I don't think we've seen a low. As far as mortgages, because you asked that, on the mortgage side, everybody's worried about the taper. So when the Fed stops kicking the can down the road, you know, and, and you know, they, they all they all get all kinds of bravery when they're in front of the camera, they're on CMEs. Oh, we've got to start tapering. And then behind closed doors, you know, they're scared to death. So because they don't want to be the Fed that now has crushed the economy and sent us in another okay. recession. So when when they finally get around to doing it, they will. People are worried about this. But here's the dirty little secret. The Fed's lied to us. The Fed says, hey, we're buying $40 billion a month in mortgage-backed securities. BS. Sorry, you're buying 108, 110, 106. I watched the numbers. Why, why is the difference? Because they don't count reinvestment. What do I mean by that? There's about $4 trillion of mortgages that the Fed's holding. So somebody out there refinances, they paid that down. The principal payments everybody makes. A, 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 you sell your home, you pay off the mortgage. The Fed gets that money. And instead of allowing their incredibly high bloated balance sheet from $8 trillion to start to reduce, they take that money and they reinvest it. So they're making these purchases. In 2020, they bought 50% of the mortgages out there. In 2021, year to date, they bought over 40% of the mortgages out there. So they're really controlling the mortgage market. Now, if they didn't do this, there's appetite. There would be, we'd see a little bit of a jump in rates. It wouldn't be so bad. But here's the thing. Everybody says, okay, so when the Fed tapers, that's a big deal, right? No, because People look at it and say, well, if the Fed starts tapering on the 40 billion they're buying, let's say they taper 25%, that's 10 billion. It seems like a big chunk, 25%, but it's really not because it represents less than 10% of what they're buying. So instead of buying 108 trillion, a billion, <laughs> the numbers get too big, they'd be buying $98 billion a month. So yes, will it have a little effect? Yes, it's not gonna have a big effect. Mortgage rates are gonna be very low for a very long time. And we probably have yet to see the loan rates. So would you, if you had an adjustable rate mortgage, what would you advise somebody to do? Continue to stay with that? 
you know, one of the biggest things you have to look at when you take out a mortgage is not just what the rate is, but what the strategy is, because the mortgage is a really important financial tool. It can affect retirement, yeah. cash flow, it can affect your kid's college, equity growth. So there's a lot of objectives that people have that that should be examined. It shouldn't be looking like, okay, I, I want to compare, like I'm buying a TV on Amazon. You know, the big, big, big one though is duration. So how long do you think I'm going to have this mortgage? Now, while somebody might say, well, I think I'm going to have this mortgage for a long time because I'm going to live there, there is another factor. What about an opportunity to refinance? I believe that an opportunity to refinance is on the horizon for 2023, even at these low rates. So I don't know how comfortable I'd be with an adjustable, although I see adjustables as being very favorable. And it represents such a small percentage of the market, about 3 to 4% right now. So it's, mm -hmm. it's really a fixed rate environment. But what I would say to people is, if you're looking to purchase a home or take out a mortgage, if you're putting less than 20% down, you need something called mortgage insurance. You have two options. You can pay mortgage insurance on a monthly basis, which the cost is a little higher monthly, or you can pay what's called upfront mortgage insurance, where you pay a bunch of cash upfront. But if you refinance earlier than about four years, you don't get back the savings that based upon the monthly basis. So my advice would be, don't pay upfront mortgage insurance, pay the monthly. Don't pay points on the mortgage to buy the mortgage down, take zero points. And here's the crazy one, but it's going to be correct. We advised this in 2018 and 2019, it was correct. Same advice here is gonna be, don't look for the lowest rate. To the extent you can, exchange taking a little higher rate, do that in exchange for lower fees. So you can get lower fees by taking a higher rate. So instead of saying, let's just pick a rate, 3% and zero points, I can take three and three eighths and get a credit towards my closing cost or fees of about $6,000 on a $400,000 mortgage. Now that can help in many ways. Not only is it a wise decision strategically, if you're thinking to refinance within five years, which I think you would or move, but it's also strategic in that today it's hard to buy a home. You may have to bid over asking price. And if you do, some people are willing, but unable to come up with the cash in order to chase that. Because remember on the mortgage, the appraisal will be based upon the purchase price or the appraised value, whichever is lower. So even if you chase that the purchase price higher, if it doesn't appraise there yet, and you're paying over what the market value is, you're not going to get this. Is This has to come up in cash. So this is a way for you to create cash out of thin air. It does not have to be repaid. Now, where's the catch? You pay a little bit more in monthly payment. But because of breakpoints in mortgage insurance, you might be able to actually make money by using this strategy. So it's a really good strategy. Very, very few people know about it or employing it, but it is a brilliant way for you to create money out of thin air, literally. It's one of the very few ways you could do it. You do not have to pay it back. Creative idea. That's uh, uh, brand new to me. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. That's great. So uh, another opportunity in a couple of years, uh, to uh, refinance uh, a view, and I share that view too. It's hard to bet against Lacey Hunt uh, in in where those directions are. Uh, the debt levels and the drag to the economy are are, are big, and technology and demographics and those sorts of things uh, overall. So uh, agree with that. Um, what's going on? in uh, theater are you doing anything uh, i am like i'm doing a lot i'm doing a lot in theater okay so um you know uh, rock of ages of course was you know, that, that was my, my my love my first show 27th longest running show in broadway history we took it worldwide Phenomenal. and uh, we had to close the show in new york because of covid 
And now it's very, very hard to remount it in New York. So what are we doing? We're going to Vegas, baby. So uh, in March, we will have an amazing show in Vegas mounted. It's going to be immerse, immersive theater where it'll be people will be like part of it. It's going to be a great experience at the Mirage. We opened in March. In fact, the Mirage is so excited about it. What they've decided to do is the New Year's theme is going to be a Rock of Ages theme. So tickets will be on sale there. But the whole hotel is going to be like Rock of Ages theme. So uh, I hope you join me there. Oh, I hope many my of you want God. To join me there. Okay, I, I heard the invite. I'm in. You're in. You, you got to be in. I'm going to grab it. That's great. Yeah, and then I've got Chris Angel in Vegas, which is a Planet Hollywood. That's a really good show that's doing extremely well now. It seems like all the shows now, people are just dying for entertainment. Uh, we 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 uh, we've been cooped up, and and that's what, been what, that's been doing uh, this passion for this. And where did it start? Where did the spark start? And and uh... well, well, you probably know I had a sh- I had my own show on CNBC for thirteen years. I still come on once in a while. I come on there on Fox once in a while, but um, but they've always been so nice to me. And and uh, I used to get a lot of people. You know, I guess back in the day, you know, when I was a little younger, maybe looked a little better. Uh, <laughs> uh, people uh, actually invited me for a couple of movie roles. And I was like, geez, I'm down for this. I want to be the next big movie star. Oh, it was all bit parts, you know, but it was fun. And um, I was in nine different movies. And uh, what happened was by being in this, um, I was in a movie called Barry Monday and I actually made the trailer. I play a doctor in this very funny movie. It's a good movie. Um, So the director and the um, writer of the, the movie, he also wrote Rock of Ages and, you know, you know, Steve, you're a very friendly guy. God bless you. You've got such a wonderful, everybody loves you and you have a great personality. And I try to be just like you, where we, you know, we try and just make friends, get along with people, spread good things, right? And- um, It's a good way to live life. It is a good way to live life. Yes, it is. Thank God for that, right? So uh, I became friendly with uh, with, with uh, Chris Dorenzo and, and he, um, you know, he obviously gave me some help because I'm not an experienced actor. So he was giving me pointers and stuff. he shows me the script, fell in love with it. Me and four other guys, we took a shot. Good thing I was an idiot and didn't know anything about it because I would would not have done it if I would have known how financially risky it is. So put it off Broadway. It was a big hit. Then I really made a crazy move and brought it to Broadway. And luckily, by really by luck, because most shows don't make it, um, it became a really big sensation worldwide. Big movie. I played the record producer in the movie. Um, so, so that's kind of how that started. And I like to sing. I sing in a band, Rock of Ages band, uh, with some really talented people. Nice. And so, so nice. have a good time. Nice. Good for you. Well, that's a spark. And and uh, uh, to to live life and be happy, you are the definition of joy, my friend. Oh, it really you. is great. Thank you. Yeah. Brother. Thanks. Well, thanks so much for sharing your insights. Any last thoughts? Uh... So a lot of this stuff is in my book, um, Money in the Streets. People are really loving it. It's got great reviews. Hit number one on Amazon's bestseller. And and Steve, that's a a book that I think people will benefit from. It's just great life lessons. Um, And and it's a really positive. It's it's a book that will make you feel good, make you think perhaps differently, find opportunities. So so yeah, I hope people take a look at that. Money in the Streets. You got it. Well, I'll put it in my letter this week and I'll put a link. So uh, love you. uh, That's great stuff. Well, really appreciate you. Thanks so much for taking time with us today. Thank you, my dear friend. Thank you. You bet. You bet. Thank you.